I'm Mark. I'm Rob. And welcome to 42 to Doomsday. We are joined by a very special guest. He's one third of the Diddly Dumb podcast. He's a long time listener and a first time caller. It's Doc Hume. Welcome to you, Doc. Hello, gentlemen. How are things? Very good, Doc. Extremely well. How are you, Doc? This is the white heat of the technological <laughs> revolution, isn't it? It's um, half nine in the morning, my end. And must be, what? Half eight in the evening, our end. They say I was an isn't Moffat a wonderful writer. This is timey wimey. That's right, and this makes more sense. <laughs> so <Certainly> it does. <laughs> it's already started. How's it going, Doc? Good. You well? I've been worse. How are you coping with the show being off air and and uh, and doing the podcast? I don't really think it makes it makes that much difference. It's only what um, September three, just under three months of the year. Um, and they've been messing around with it so much in recent years, you know, having split seasons and uh, delays and that. I don't think anyone's really going to notice. In fact, it's almost a relief. It's quite a pain to do review shows during the actual season. So you can't say at the last minute, I can't make the recording, our agreed recording <coughs> date this week. Because it can't, it can't go out a week late. Because there's no point say, spending half an hour saying, oh, I wonder what's going to happen in the second part of the Zygon 2 Berta when it's already gone out. And it's also, it makes it slightly less fun when there's this this relentless, you know, you've, you've got to follow this, um, you're always being carried along, dragged along on a roller coaster. <clears throat> We're not that fussed, really. Just going to think of presumably six or seven new but different uh, topics to discuss on podcasts. Do you find, Doc, that the, the relentless pressure to do a review of each episode while the series is on telly, do you find that your views change about that episode later on with a bit of t- the passage of time, or do you think that your instant, almost instant reaction is is where you're going to land, you know, in five or six years' time? I will watch it on first broadcast, and then I'll watch it possibly, which obviously is only on a Saturday, and I'll watch it usually on the Sunday with a piece of paper and a pencil in front of me. You see, uh, critically, we ought, I suppose we ought to leave a bit of time for passions to cool but you can't really um do a dot to podcast where you don't actually review the season while it's on you don't talk about it i find there's a lot of i couldn't stand the um season four when it was first on with the uh, tenant uh, catherine tate uh because i dislike i really really disliked her in runaway bride where I thought she she was mostly doing a, one of a, a selection of her characters from her, the Catherine Tate comedy show, um, and I think when it was announced that she was returning, I just decided, oh God, she's going to be awful, and I allowed that to dictate what my opinion of her in season four was. And then about two years ago, I rewatched season four. God, that must have been a a weekend with nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I quite liked her. I don't. I thought the bit at the end where she's, you know, he takes her memory away, is sorry, spoilers, is um, <clears throat> was was interesting. But it's not the sort of thing where you know people say, oh, "Weren't you crying buckets when you when you saw that?" I thought, no, not particularly. So I will review things. Review things. Sorry, as in you know review my opinion of it as opposed to review the capital R. I tend not to if I think something, I thought that was terrible I won't watch it again. Time flight might be you know, just waiting there patiently for me to suddenly discover that I love it, but I'm not going to discover that because I'll never watch it again 
<laughs> unless unless someone says, "Oh, let's discuss, let's do a podcast based on aeroplanes next week," and I'm forced to watch it. Didn't get our memo then. We're talking about time flight tonight. No, <laughs> I thought we were doing a commentary on time flight, Mark. Oh God. <laughs> It's a plane. It looks it looks crap at the end. We can't do commentaries on Diddly Dumb. Why's that? Because I'd spend so much time afterwards editing out me going, uh, oh, what's 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 his name again? <laughs> Which is generally my um, uh, podcasting tone. Um, that would immediately be out of sync with everyone's um, video at home. So we thought, oh, better not do that. We did a Five Doctors once on Mark Cockrum's uh, Nerdology podcast. Oh yeah, how'd that go? Uh, it went quite well actually. But uh, do you do do you do them yourselves? I don't think I've ever heard you do one. We only did one um, to take the piss out of the whole genre, where we did one of Doctor in Distress. <laughs> Might do a little one later on uh, in the year, a little comedy one. If you're going to do one, it's got to be Four to Doomsday, isn't it? Yeah, but that means we'd have to watch it again. <laughs> Why forty two, by the way? Uh, it was the age at which Rob uh, was. We both, well, I was anyway. <laughs> that we started podcasting. God, how depressing. <laughs> and it's actually increasingly getting worse. So we're going to call ourselves the Doable Barkers, but this is just after the J and T book came out. We thought it might be a little bit off. Off color. Off mic. <laughs> yes. Yes, Doc. If you were to give a thirty-second elevator pitch to somebody uh, that describes Diddly Dumb podcast. What would you say? Oh, it's easy. I'm British. We don't talk to people in elevators. Oh, really? No. Or on the tube. Or or indeed at all. It's a fortnightly three-man podcast about Doctor Who, where Doctor Who is, shall we say, the principal linking theme. But we hope to go off at tangents at the, um, at the slightest provocation. Um, and that's it, really. Meandering. Yes. We, we, we tend to meander, which is why we tend to be a bit too, um, shall we say, a bit too long to fit into your average lunch show. I often find, and I've heard from people who, who listen to our podcast anyway, that the tone that some of the best podcasts have, uh, the conversations are the conversations that match the, the, the ones that you have with your friends down the pub on a Friday night after work about anything, you know, even Doctor Who. Uh, sometimes I suppose if you are too narrowly focused with a podcast where you're just relentlessly talking about the show, yes, um, it comes across as very relentless and uh, very narrow, narrow focused. We tend to choose as if we can relatively broad subjects to discuss each podcast, so that we're not um, restricting ourselves too much. Uh, and where where we do restrict, I mean, last week we we reviewed the conundrum. Uh, the book and the mind rubber, which you would think is quite specific. Even where we are specific, we tend to not to stick to it too much. It's more, we're not really there to provide, you know, uh, a review of something that will that will stand in the annals of fandom forever. Mm. Uh, it's more just, uh, we're trying to think, we're coming up with a, a subject each week just as an excuse to justify actually doing it. It's actually the just having the chat on the podcast that's, that's the reason why we do it, rather than um, the fact that you know that be anyone on the other end listening. I remember how, I'm trying to remember how we started. The original three of us uh, were originally the three principal emailers in to the Blue Box pod- podcast. Never heard of it. The Eminence Grease of that podcast 
Never was an Eminence greaser. Uh, J.R. Southall, the man with the second least convincing Australian accent in podcasting. Um, Apart from ours. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. <laughs> then said to us, oh, why, don't, why don't you uh, do, get together and do podcasts of your own? And we thought, oh, that's, that's very nice. And so I think the penny dropped that actually what he was doing was trying to distract us so we wouldn't have time to email into him anymore hmm. um and so in a, in a way he's just he's a sort of um we what we like to think of is think of jr as the baby father of the diddly dumb podcast so he's a devros figure in other words oh uh, yes but uh, it would it would be um a david goodison love it the mask slips too often. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the microphone's in his ear. Not to get too uh, navel gazery or gazing, Doc. What do you think of the state of Doctor Who podcasts uh, at the moment? I haven't seen my navel for years. <laughs> <laughs> state of Doctor Who podcasts. Yes, I think what what you tend to do. I gosh, when was this? A couple of years before I started podcasting, uh, on my blog i wrote um a seminal piece which was i think it was called um the top five reasons for unsubscribing from a doctor who podcast i remember that one i do too and unfortunately <laughs> listen to these five or six reasons why i think i'd say on itunes i said oh and unsubscribe from that that's just so annoying um and i then got a, fl- a relative flood of things of messages coming from podcasters saying was that aimed at me Was that a dig at me? Um, And it's stuff like people eating while they're... Something as trivial as that, people eating while they're podcasting. Hello, Nick Briggs. Yeah, I know. (laughs) People with with boring, flat, northern, monotone voices. This uh, this was my lack of self-awareness week. And the worst one is people who... Um, put on the voice of the comic, the comic book store guy from The Simpsons to when they're describing fandom. Oh, Mr. Muffet. I can't do that for a voice. Mr. Muffet, yeah, and I can't do it either. That sort of nerd, that sort of extra nerdy voice. Yeah. I can't remember what was. Oh, yes, I was unsubscribing. So a lot of the time I'll unsubscribe sometimes in um, a fit of peak because I'm thinking, oh, these people aren't getting anywhere. <laughs> or someone has got say a particularly annoying laugh it sounds like us rob <laughs> yes and you can't listen to all of them no the, you can't the, the good thing is of course that there's so if you go on to like the dot two podcast alliance and see the list of all those to register with it there's so many mm. that you can get whatever you want if you want if you're someone who thinks that Stephen moffat is god and you you want to, all you want to listen to is people saying how wonderful he is there's a podcast for you if you think he's the devil and all you want to listen to is podcast people saying how evil he is? Then there's a podcast for you. There's always a danger that you think with let's say the show ever gets cancelled again, you think well there must be some a finite number of topics you can talk about. Mm. At which point you know you'd have reviewed every single classic and new uh, story. Um, you'd have uh, you'd have done um, a special podcast talking about eight, dedicated to each of the doctors. Would you run out of things to say? Which I suppose is a danger. Which is why I think it's dangerous to be a bit too prescriptive on podcasts. If you if you allow the conversation to go all over the place, 
um, then you'll never cover something into so much detail that you can't come back to it again. There's stuff I'll unsubscribe from. But, I mean, it's never... See, I've, I've never... I was joking about, you know, people who think Moffat's God and who won't listen to anything otherwise. Well, I wasn't entirely podcast, uh, joking. But um, I think, personally, I've, I've never seen the link between liking something or liking somebody and agreeing with them. I mean, I can't... I know we were joking about J.R. earlier, but I can't remember the last time I agreed with anything J.R. said. But, and I'd never... And I don't mean that bitchily, but I, I'd never miss an episode of the Blue Box podcast because it's the... It's the, the podcasters and their style I like. And what they actually say is... By the by. It's not... It's, not, it's, it's shall we say... Um, a... a what do they call it? Second order consideration. That's what you were saying earlier. It's the people talk about. Oh, it's the sort of podcast that sounds like you know just some mates chatting to each other down the pub. Um, that, that that can go too far, but I think that's the important thing. Don't worry too much about. Oh, do I need to find a particular niche? So if I'm starting up a new Doctor Who podcast, there's so many out there. Oh, do I need to search for a particular niche within? Doctor Who uh, fandom or discussion that no one's talked about before, such as I do a podcast exclusively about merchandising or exclusively about um, cosplaying, say. Don't worry about that. Just it's the people who are podcasting, I think, that attract people. It's probably why we have such a tidy audience. I don't know how I got onto that. If you're going to set up a new Doctor Who podcast, uh, set one up over here because there's only four of us. So we need the numbers. That's certainly something... Interest. Do you think, if you look at the spread of podcasts, and it may just be the summer I've not come across, but you'd, yes, you'd expect there to be, bulk of them to be in the UK, and you'd possibly expect a large amount in the US just because of the, the size of the place. But it, it's always astonished me there's only, and I apologise to anyone who, for instance, in Canada, who I might have missed, but there's only one podcast I'm aware of in, in all of Canada. There's only two I'm aware of in Australia. Only one of them, well, New Zealand is obviously is a smaller country I'm aware of in New Zealand. And you would think... There'd be more. Yeah, yeah you'd think that, shall we say, uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand would find it easier to get Doctor Who. But the sort of sense of humour and the quirkiness of it, um, just because we theoretically share a similar sense of, sense of humour because of... Um, a sort of linked history. I've never understood that. Particularly in Australia, where you think, um, and this is only be my impression, so it may, may, may not be true, that they almost from birth, Doctor Who is being on TV for you. So it's, you know, it's not something that you discover when you're at college, say, no. and becomes like a little nerdy thing that's, that's just you in a tiny circle of friends, and you're considered a... You're considered a um, you know, a nerd or a geek, if you watch it, it's part of everyday life. You would have thought, well, there'd be loads in Australia. I mean, are you aware of more than just yourselves and Rob Irwin's podcast in Australia? There's two others. Ooh. There's Flight Through Eternity, which I think is going through the classic uh, series run and reviewing episodes. And there's a new one to start, and I think it's based in Melbourne, and I think they're doing Doctor Who reviews, but they're doing it from a, uh, and a person who's never watched the uh, original series before. So he's just coming to it from the new series. So I haven't checked that one out. But I, I do find it quite strange, because in the, in the 80s, 
and the early 90s, the, the Australian fanzine scene was pretty good. Like, there was lots of fanzines. All the states were doing fanzines, and we had awards. Uh, talk about Insular. They had awards, uh, which I think you won, Rob. No, I did for writing. But let, let's not get too carried away with winning awards. <laughs> You're right. It just hasn't translated into people wanting to do a podcast. The Australian way of life is uh, somebody else will do it. Can't be asked. I don't know whether that's got uh, anything to do with it. But when we started, I, I think the main reason we started was at the time there was only, I think, one. That's the only reason we sort of started. It was like, what else? There's only one being done in this country. Let's see how hard can it be. And it was. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is the Australian way of life because I mean I don't like I hate to, to deal in national stereotypes, but if you if you think of Australia as somewhere somewhere where you don't have to stay indoors eleven months of the year, mm. there's um, I, I'm not not so enthralled to stereotypes. I imagine there's a beach outside everyone's house, but there's, should we say there's more to do outdoors? And this is why this is why the British have invented so many things. Because we're, we're stuck indoors all the time, out of the rain with nothing to do. This is why we ended up building an empire. Because, oh God, I've, got to, I've got to find somewhere hotter than this. Find it, colonise it, exploit it. And maybe that's, maybe that's it. There are a lot of Australian podcasts on other, on other subjects. I mean, there's one I found on Retro Gaming a couple of days ago, which is in Melbourne. Um, so there is a, a, a quite a vibrant Australian podcast community, but there's only four of us doing Doctor Who. So maybe we're just very niche. I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the physical barriers to entry for, for podcasting are pretty low. I mean, you, all you need is a half-decent microphone, uh, you know, a headset and the, the right software. Um, but in terms of Doctor Who, it can be it can be a fairly passive... I don't think anyone would dispute that the bar for Doctor Who <laughs> podcasting is very low. But in terms of consuming Doctor Who, I, I tend to think that, you know, a lot of the audience are quite passive in, in the way they do it. They, jump, they can go onto the internet and read other people's reviews. And they can watch the show, obviously. And that's about the extent of their interest. The, 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 the getting up and, and, you know, having a chat to someone and doing it regularly and posting it on the internet... Maybe beyond ninety nine point five percent of the, the Doctor Who audience, especially in Australia. I mean, uh, yeah, no, I won't. I won't say what I was going to say about certain fans here in Melbourne, but let's <laughs> let's just say that the passive lifestyle supported by our federal government is prevalent amongst these people. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> Back in Christmas twenty, must be twenty thirteen. Must be shortly after the. Um, anniversary I think um, when it was first suggested to three of us that we set up a po- the Deadly Dumb podcast we one of the things we uh, put us off was oh, I can't, I, I'm not very I'm not I'm not technical I don't understand these things um, but once you put you this is to encourage anyone who's might be listening who's um, been put off by this fear of technical stuff once we got down to it it took me, say, um, I stayed up late one night and set up a blog, um, a Twitter account, a Facebook page. What else? Oh, I, I, um, an iTunes page, all that sort of stuff. Um, but once you get to do it, the slightly most complicated thing is getting is linking your feed in so that every time you post a new podcast, it automatically gets picked up by all these platforms like iTunes and... Ditcher and all those guys. The easiest thing to do is just go on somewhere like YouTube and type in... How do I podcast? Uh, and there's, there'll always be something... Um... Email other podcasters. I think it was either you, Rob, emailed 
one of the guys at Blue Box, was it, was it Simon, and asked him how, how did he do it? But basically, I did. I mean, I, I'm not uh, unfamiliar with technology. I mean, I had a computer in the 80s, so, you know, like everyone else. But And, and even though my daughter's uh, way ahead of me as 10-year-old and 8-year-olds with the iPad, I mean, I'm no slouch with it. But, I mean, once, once someone guides you... I think it was Simon, and I'm, I'm very, I'm still very grateful for the fact that he was happy to share the information. It's not like it's secret law or anything like that. But once you did it, like Doc, I mean, I, I just spent uh, an evening setting up um, the, the blog and setting up the Twitter feed and setting up you know, Gmail, all relatively easy things. But the hardest thing I found was the the the, the service that uh, the the uh, the podcast goes out through, and. Even though it was a bit of you know stumbling around in the dark for a little bit, it, it was relatively easy to set up uh, in the end. So if there's anyone out there who's thinking about setting up a podcast and is sort of put off slightly by the technical concerns, it's honestly it's not that hard. If we can do it, it's not that hard. The the most difficult thing we found in the end was just agreeing on a name. Mm. Well, I, I tend to think that Diddly Dumb is possibly the greatest podcasting name. Uh, ever because I mean I'll frequently well, that's kind of you. no no seriously because I'll, I'll, I'll if I'm ever sort of thinking about Doctor Who in the workplace I'll just you know this is a strange thing to do but mutter you know the, the theme song diddly dum you know just just it's just a great you know just a great name I think it was my erstwhile uh, co-podcaster the Rev who came up with that we're coming up with some nonsense I for for some reason thought that analog time was the coolest. <laughs> title ever uh, and then it's, it's once he said oh how about diddly dumb I thought oh, that's actually, it was crap wasn't it <laughs> um, it also has the advantage of having the same uh, number of letters in as Doctor Who so that if um, our uh, lo- podcast logo which is the diamond logo from the Tom Baker era it makes it easier to fit to fit it in when you re- re- transpose the letters I still think we should have gone with Doable Barkers, Rob. Well, I was happy to go with that, Mark, but you're 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 a little bit you, you're you're reticent about it, especially at the time after these uh, incidents came out. Well, I will say, sitting here looking at my Skype screen and seeing your two faces, I would say, barking certainly <laughs> not so doable. <laughs> That's not a very nice thing to say about Rob. Well, hey, no, no, no. I am an aged Lothario, I must admit, but uh, I like to think that my my. In the future, I will reach my peak. <laughs> or not. Here's something always interested me. Not much. but I don't have much to do sitting in out of the rain. Yeah, I was talking about flat northern monotones mm. earlier. That's, that really annoyed a lot of people. Who <laughs> got in touch with me and said, that's an attack on me, isn't it? <laughs> Can you tell? You're listening to a British podcast. Can you tell? The difference between accents. I can. Yes, I can. I won't necessarily know which regional locality they might come from. For instance, I can't place your accent, Doc, uh, within uh, England, but I, I can tell the different regional accents. Just because it's generally sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. Apart yeah. from that. Well, mine is sort of Manchester with all the most of the rough edges knocked off it. But, um, for instance, you listen to something like Blue Box, can you tell a different a clear difference between JR and Mark Simon and Lee. Yes. JR's uh, I wouldn't say it's about my best friend, but JR's a Yorkshireman. Yes. Who went down there in his youth. Oh okay. A very clearly distinct accent say between Manchester and Liverpool. Mm. And there's two cities are only thirty thirty miles apart. Do you get that? 
in Australia? No, we're all the same. No, that's not right, Mark. I would tend to disagree. Really? Well, if you go out over to Perth, which is a, a refugee, a refuge for uh, whites who fled Zimbabwe in South Africa. I mean, I've heard this from customers who've rung through at work. Uh, there is a lot of Southern African uh, accents creeping into the, 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 the accent in Perth. Uh, I've spoken to people from Queensland, from far north Queensland, and the accent, the Australian accent is far broader uh, than, say, for instance, mine or yours. Well, mine, because I'm actually born here. Uh, but I think, relatively speaking, there's, um, in the major urban centres of Sydney and Melbourne and, and perhaps even Adelaide, uh, the Australian accent is, it doesn't vary that much. But on the fringes, and you know, Perth and far north Queensland, you're not going to get more fringe than that. Um, there, there, there is, I find anyway, a difference in, in the, uh, the English that they speak compared to how I speak it. And apart from the fact that most of the people in far north Queensland are ill-educated yokes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they are, Mark. Come on. Hello, if they're listening. No, screw them. They are. Most of them are. They live, they live in the country. They're hundreds of kilometres from any sort of urban centre. Most of them were educated over, the, over radio back in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, and they've probably married their bit. first cousin, you know, several times. Hello, mother, uncle. <laughs> It's a double barrel thing over here because once you, you're listening to someone on a podcast, once you've, you've worked out, oh, they come from that area of the country, then you've got to decide, oh, now what, what social class is he? <laughs> yes. Well, the thing that I. Or social class. Yes, class. Well, the thing I find most fascinating, Doc, is that but, we'll just say England itself um, is such a compact geographical area, and yet, as you said before, the variety within, say, 30 or 40 miles is, is amazing. One of my favourite writers is, is Ramsey Campbell, and he, he hails from Liverpool. And I think you said before that Manchester and Liverpool are, what, separated by about 30 miles? Yeah, something like that. And are you in Manchester, are you, or thereabouts? Yeah. So his accent is totally at variance to yours. And it's just remarkable. I find that remarkable that it's, it's such a small place, has such a, a wide variety in how people speak English. And there's obviously historical reasons for that, but yeah. You've got historical things like Liverpool is the the principal port that Irish immigrants would have would have landed in. Hmm. So if you're, for instance, um, I mean, obviously during the 19th century, you've got you've got I'm reluctant to say waves because that's a sort of um, word that's being used to describe uh, Syrian refugees at the moment. But you've got huge numbers of people coming in from Ireland to Britain to <coughs> Great Britain, which is the big thing with England, Scotland, Wales in it. Um, obviously, try to escape the potato famine at some stage, but also because there's so much work digging the canals, building the railways for the Industrial Revolution, becoming navvies, essentially. And so if, if you're arriving in Britain to do work, and you're all, say, a lot of you, most of you are arriving at Liverpool, then um, presumably more of you are likely to stay in Liverpool. So I, I suspect that possibly the thing about the Liverpool accent is but it's more of an Irish uh, Irish uh, descent in there. Mm. I have heard it said, I don't know why I'm going on this, there's nothing to do with Doctor Who, but I have heard it said that the longer people live in a particular place, the more likely it is that they're at, they're, they will develop a specific accent that's unique to say another place take something like the the age of the country I know it's, it's silly saying Australia's only a hundred or so odd years old given that it's it's actually thousands of years old but you know what I mean mm. and also if you're maybe maybe it's it's it may never happen in, 
it you know happened properly in Australia this because you've now got the thing where you don't have got television where you're being bombarded with all different types of accents from around Australia almost every day or depending on how much time you spend watching TV so maybe it I mean in Britain you've got this thing called estuarine English which is the Tenth Doctor's accent yeah it's sometimes called Mockney but but (coughs) estuarine means around the the Thames estuary Mm. which essentially means a mixture between London and Essex and you get people in to the north of England. You get kids speaking like that. Uh, the way sometimes I think in, in um, I know from my friends in America will say this: you get uh, kids, white kids in America, putting on black accents because um, yeah. I mean, if you can be say something, say something as slightly crass as that, you know, a black accent. But you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah. So, a, a st- so we say put on what's what's regarded as a stereotypical black accent because yeah. they want to sound cool. And you've got kids speaking almost estuarine English because that's what they see on EastEnders every day. Mm. I must say that Coronation Street's just as popular, but no one, no one seems to be in Britain seems to be inclined to put on um, a Manchester accent because <laughs> I think it's cool. You read a lot about globalization and the forces of globalization, and you see that with television and all that. And I mean, I'd read a bit about it because I'd studied some stuff related to that, but it really hit me very hard when my wife or my future wife at the time and I went around the world and we were in Barcelona and for a couple of nights we went out for dinner and we were served by a Korean woman who spoke Spanish uh, with a perfect Spanish accent and it just you know it's it's just uh, it, the the dichotomy there I, I was struggling to get my little head around it but um, just just to drag it back to Doctor Who what did you think about Tennant uh adopting a, a different accent to his own for when he took the role. That's interesting. You get a lot of a fair few people from, shall we say, outside the UK and countries, shall we say, more immediately linked to it, like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, wherever, um, saying, oh, I have to put the subtitles on Peter Capaldi's voice. Mm. And I think the problem with Peter Capaldi, I can understand him fine, but... I think I mean sometimes I have to think what did he think there, but I mean I'll I'll, I'll get it within a, within a second, but I think he he doesn't. I don't think he makes the the effort to tone down uh, elements of his accent. Where if you're if you're just speaking naturally, you're not sort of declaiming like a piece of Shakespeare where you're trying to pronounce every syllable, but you're just talking casually and, and words are. Sort of eliding into it. Do I mean eliding? You know what I mean? Yes. Sort of m- m- the ends of wor- one word is merging into the beginning of the other word. Um, that's that where I think accents can become awkward. I think, I mean, there was no can- canonical reason for do- doing it, was there? Because you had Sylvester's voice. Mm. Uh, I mean, actually, Sylvester went the, opposite, the extreme opposite direction, didn't he? He actually exaggerated his accent with his rolling R's. Mm. I think what but possible problem would be you, you've, obviously you've seen the new the Star Wars prequels. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I just watched it last night. Actually, number two. The the Ewan McGregor's Scottish, mm. but he's obviously trying to do an Alec Guinness voice, mm. which is what we would regard as um, RP over here, the received pronunciation. In other words, the what used to be the 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 accent that everyone on TV up until about the 
late 70s would speak in. And I think that putting on... I think that's almost like a barrier. You know how they say... When you talk about draconians, the big thing everyone always says is, oh, because you can... You know, it's only like a half mask. You can see elements of the, the actor's face moving, which makes it more, you know... Realistic. They can communicate emotion more. Whereas if you've got to say a big thing like, I don't know, a Santaran head, where you can't see anything, then actors can say, oh, it's hard to, you know, project a personality through the mask. I think that's the case of like Ewan McGregor. He puts on this, not only an English accent, or an RP accent, but a very stilted one, in an attempt to do um, sound like Alec Guinness. And I think he he finds it hard to act through it. I think he's a fine actor, but he doesn't come across well. And I think that's possibly the problem with David Tennant. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not... I wasn't entirely keen with his um, on his portrayal of the Doctor myself. I didn't, didn't mind it too much. I wasn't... Uh, the other thing is, with that sort of accent, is it really annoys certain elements of the country. Because whereas in... I don't speak for England, but say in, in England, um, the natural thing to... Uh, should we say about a, a, a northern accent, perhaps a broad, far broader northern accent of mine is, um, it's a temptation to think, oh, the person speaking that must be thick, must be stupid, mm. or less intelligent because it's a slower, you know, the accents, are, the uh, the vowels are much are, are flatter, it's a much slower thing. Whereas an accent, say, down in London, which is more speaking slightly quicker, can to someone up north... Sound quite sly. Oh, oh, he's untrustworthy. It sounds like um, the patter, bit of a spiv. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm generalising. Obviously, mm. I don't think it made that much difference, really. I don't think any. Anyway, you can understand why Russell T Davis said, "Right, we're filming in Cardiff. We're going to pretend it's London." Apologies to our Welsh friends. Uh, everyone's heard of London, and London is. I can't. I'm, doing little thing with my air quotes with my fingers at the moment, iconic, yes. in the way that Cardiff isn't. Uh, but I don't think anyone... Uh, can you tell the difference when you hear David Tennant, David Tennant talking in his doctor voice than when he's talking in his normal voice? I can. From your point of view, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. I don't know why they did it. Well, they're just playing it safe. Is, is, is Russell T Davies' era a conservative era of Doctor Who, especially where you have the, the lead actor being asked to tone down his natural accent because people might it might not be one that's receptive people are receptive to i think i remember um when tenant was cast and they talked about the accent that russell um said to david to obviously do his mockney one because after eccleston he didn't want it to be like a regional tour of the uk yes that's interesting that's that's actually a point i've that occurred to me a while ago actually it's just as much if you say right we're going to go from Eccleston, which is Manchester Salford, mm. and we're going to turn, we're going to have David Tennant as the next Doctor speaking this estuarine English. That's the po- Mockney is a sort of insulting way of saying it. Like it's like you know mock Cockney. Yeah. Um, that's just as much a, a geographical leap around the UK as going from Manchester to. Scotland, mm. which suggests that actually what he's not, he's not thinking, can people take the geographical leap? He's thinking, oh, actually, that's the, the accent that David Tennant essentially does. That is the, you know, what, we, what we, call, we might call a standard English accent now. What's replaced 
receive pronunciation. In the day of the Doctor, um, Moffat wrote a line in for, for the Eleventh Doctor to say uh, to watch it, Dick Van Dyke. Is that right? Yeah. Is this taking the piss out of it anyway? <laughs> that is unfortunately. I mean, I'm a great fan of the likes of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang rather and Mary Poppins, mm. but it can't be denied that uh, Dick Van Dyke's. Uh, British accent is a sort of toe curling, and, that, and that's what that, that's what we mean whenever yeah. we say yeah. Dick Van Dyke. It's someone doing an awful lot. Did you ever watch Frasier? Yes. Yeah, you know, the Cheers spin-off. Mm. Daphne's brothers. Mm. Well, first of all, Daphne's accent is nothing like a Manchester accent. <laughs> it's supposed to be, uh, and all their brothers come in and they're, and they're speaking in very broad English, as spoken by. Um, a bad American accent, which is really, really bad. I remember Steve Gutenberg doing a... He was a cast in a New Zealand film and he had to do a New Zealand accent and, God, it was bad. In this New Zealand film, they started talking about the dream time. So not only had they got the accent wrong, but they actually got the, the whole mythology uh, regarding the Maoris and the Aborigines completely wrong altogether. <laughs> Well, I don't approve of anyone trying to trying to uh, mock a New Zealand accent. I'll have that to, that to be said here and now. Thanks, bro. <laughs> now, speaking of speech, uh, I'm dubbing this next bit Speechgate. Basically, last weekend, the Radio Times uh, retweeted John Hurt reading a speech from Planet of the Daleks, which started fandom basting itself in its own fan glaze. Personally, I'd be more impressed if they'd given him the first five minutes of time in the Rani to read out. But anyway, that's, uh, that's a different story. Just wanted to get your gentlemen's uh, thoughts on Speechgate and this whole uh, situation which has been going on the last couple of, maybe a year? It's mainly in US conventions where they get a doctor on stage and like a caged animal get him to recite lines from stories that he has uh, never seen or had no involvement in whatsoever on the off chance that he'll completely fuck it up. Doc? Well, I can tell you what I think about this fad when I tell you that I'm very aware of it, but I've never experienced it. I've, I've seen links online to, I don't know, say, watch this video of Sylvester reading John's Daisiest Daisy speech. But I've never once been inclined to click play. Mm. I thought, why would I be interested in that? Um, also, am I alone in thinking it's a little bit rude? Show us how much better you can deliver this line than that cheap hack who delivered it originally in the TV series. What about you, Rob? I think it's just the Americans, really, isn't it? It's just, it's, the Americans are just interested in the spectacle of it all, of, of, of a complete stranger getting up and, as you say, doing someone else's lines from something mm. that was done 40 years ago. It's, it's rude to the guests to impose it upon them. It's rude to the original performer at the time. It, it, it almost feels like there's a pack of Doctor Who fans roaming the American convention circuit like they're collecting collector cards and they're just hoping that this particular actor will give this particular speech and complete their set. Good luck to them if, if, if the actor is happy to play along, but at the end of the day, what's the point? What is the, what is the actual point? I can understand it. If you, if you got, say you've got Sylvester on a panel and they say, they hand you a, they, the script and say, oh, can you do your cities made of water and islands made of song or whatever he says at the end of survival speech or if tom's there and he says oh can you do oh i think of a speech that tom did the ark in space one indomitable oh yeah well it's not really a speech really is it can you do your indomitable half line oh yes that was sit out eternity it is a speech yeah. isn't it but do you think there are any doctors who you'd say get asked to do this more than other doctors i think it's been and look i've only seen a couple of links john hurt seemed to have got smashed last weekend at gallifrey one poor bugger um, but that's what happens when you're non-canon. McCoy seems to be getting 
smashed a fair bit. And in fact, because yeah. um, I tweeted about it as well, and I put it on Facebook, because I was getting a bit jack of it, to be perfectly honest. And a uh, friend of the show, Paul Schoons, uh, name drop there, um, he basically tweeted back and said that um, he had a conversation with Sylvester McCoy about this a lot long after his uh, reading of the Pandorica speech and it appeared on YouTube. And he said that uh, McCoy said that he wasn't comfortable, had been pressured into doing it on stage, and he certainly wasn't happy that it had been on YouTube. You know what I said, like, is it, isn't it rude? I, th- I initially thought, isn't it rude to the, the actor who, who's, whose, speech it, whose speech it originally was? But also, it's, it, I think you're right, it's, it's rude to the guest on the stage. If you're being given, let's say you're Sylvester being given a, uh, a Tom speech to do, you must, as one actor to another, be thinking, oh, this is, this is, you know, not, this is unprofessional. Yeah. Trying, you know, almost like do, I'm doing an impersonation of this speech. Or, I mean, this is probably more to the point, because this is what actors will be more familiar with. They'll think, oh, they're asking me, almost asking me to re-audition for, for to Tom you know as if, if as if Tom was the first choice and I, oh actually no I'm the second choice because you know no actors like to be thought of as being um, as not having been the first choice for a role ask Colin Baker hmm. if you want to see a big screen version of it being stuffed up completely well look no further than David Bradley in Adventure in Space and Time when he had to recreate the uh, Goodbye Susan speech if you look at the original it's you know, it's wonderfully uh, performed by a man who, let's be honest, can barely remember what day it is. And it's quite moving, to be honest. But when David Bradley did it, it had no warmth whatsoever. It had got a complete tone of it wrong. And it's like, you know, Alan Partridge says, you know, stop getting who wrong. Just recently watched um, Dalek Invasion of Earth, the cheap one. <laughs> uh, and when, when the first Doctor was giving that, until then there must be no regret speech. I wasn't crying. I was thinking, just stop speaking and dematerialise in case she gets back in. <laughs> because I think... I mean, this is nothing against Caroline Ford, of course. I don't know why people feel the need to say that. If you say, I don't like this character, you feel the need to add, oh, this is nothing against the actor or the actress, as if anyone would think that you think the, the two are linked in any way. But I think I'm currently watching, going through this era of... Um, the first up to zero for something I'm doing on my blog. And uh, Vicky is such a breath of fresh air. I was watching um, the, ma- the, not the mind dropper, the time meddler last night. Uh, and I, th- I think she and Stephen have got a brilliant rapport. You know, they're, they're sort yeah. of, <clears throat> they'll say, oh, we don't know whether doc- is the doctor at the monastery, is he down at the beach, what should we do? And it's with with Susan. You might have Ian or Barbara might have said, "I think we should go up to the monastery." Susan would probably would probably say, uh, "Oh, are you sure?" Or, "Oh, I'm very frightened." Or if if she's really, you know, if the scriptwriter has really decided to give her an exciting day, "Oh, Mr. Chesterton, I've sprained my ankle." <laughs> Whereas with Ian and Vicky, so Stephen and Vicky, it's more sort of each giving as good as they get. They yeah. sure go, no, no, we shouldn't go there because oh no, but they're not arguing about it. But you know, they show initiative, don't they? It's a, it's a pity she doesn't last that long. It's as almost as if Doctor Who uh, has emerged from a nineteen fifties. Uh, sort of approach to characters to a, to the sort of the swinging 60s where the, the companions have a bit more uh, bite to them and they're prepared to have a bit more by-play mm. and, and, and uh, you know, f- f- action to themselves. It also happens to be the period of the show where the Doctor, for some reason, has turned into a giggling lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's the meds. 
what's made you go back and start watching Doctor Who from the beginning? Was it the nine-month dead air? Says Mark, completely uncued. <laughs> I should get a job on FM radio. <laughs> I'm firmly of the belief, or at least I was when I had too much to drink one night, that the, you know, we talk about also about character arcs. Yeah. Um, I'm firmly of the belief that the first Doctor's character arc from grumpy old sod to avuncular, twinkly-eyed old man mm. can most clearly be measured by how he talks to Ian and the modes of address he uses for him. So, for instance, at the very beginning in the junkyard, it's, um, how dare you uh, enter my junkyard, sir? At the very end, just for the leave, it's, oh, Ian, sweetheart, I could kiss you. Um, maybe that's a slight exaggeration. He doesn't actually, does actually say, though, I could kiss you, doesn't he, to Ian at the very end? Yeah. And in the meantime, as between those two extremes, his thawing frostiness, if we can say, uh, I thought, well, yeah, you can measure that by, does he say, um, my dear sir, or young man? And then it thaws into, my dear boy, uh, and so I've been going through from the unearthly child onwards, counting on my little pad and pencil in front of me every instance of this uh, and uh, logging it on my blog, which, by a pure coincidence, I happen to have the, uh, the address for, which is... you think I'd know this off by heart, wouldn't you, without having to look it up? Uh, doc whom, that's whom with an M, dot wordpress.com. Uh, and it's a... What's I've called it? I can't remember what I've called it. Oh, the category is something called name-dropping, I think. Doctor Who name-dropping? No, Doctor Whom. But the, the category within the blog is called name-dropping. And so I've gone go go through giving a short review on every one, on every story, and mention, mentioning uh, at the end uh, the, how the Doctor's relationship with Ian is changing. What's been more, perhaps slightly more interesting than that because that probably seems a little recherche for most, is that this has forced me to watch a lot of Doctor Who I've never, I've never seen before, or at least I've not seen for a long time. When I was in the early, like, 93, 94, I was sharing a house in North London with some mates, um, and we had UK Gold, which will not mean anything to anyone... Um, uh, outside the UK, I suppose, but it, every Sunday they screamed, screamed, sorry, not screamed, in order, an omnibus version, i.e., with all the um, titles and taken out, titles and credits taken out, and it's merged together, but with a lot of adverts, uh, commercials in between, uh, every Doctor Who series. Uh, and obviously, as uh, I have to stop saying, obviously, um, as someone who in the UK, if you thing like Doctor Who is that once you've got once you've it was something that was broadcast say in the 70s you would never see it again there was no, there was nowhere where it had it on a loop with co things constantly going through this is why you've got this strange thing of UK fans having to ask Australian fans to send them VCRs yes of old episodes because the BBC wouldn't redo them and so they do this on a Sunday morning, but usually on a Sunday morning, I used to have a terrible hangover. And so I'd be, I had, I was watching it on a, on a little TV in my bedroom, uh, and I'd be dropping off to sleep every five minutes. So I wasn't paying much attention. 
they wasn't a very good TV, TV, and they were showing very, very poor. What do they, what do they call it? Um, that unrestored, unrestored versions of it. So it wasn't very clear, and so you go through something like. Uh, I mean, I, I would have watched the Daleks. Oh, I'll just mention Dalek Invasion of Earth. I would have watched that before, in um, early nineties, but I have no real memory of it other than the movie version of it. Um, so I've seen most of it before. Um, but never actually paying attention to it. So, admittedly, with, the, with those two Dalek stories, I've always preferred, I had always preferred the um, the Dalek Mania movie versions. You get to see on the big screen when I was a kid, our local cinema. I think it must have been during school holidays. But on these afternoons, you know, the parents would would say to their kids, I'll oh, just, here's 50 pence or something, go to the cinema and enjoy yourselves while they got rid of us. And they used to have series of the old black and white Buster Crab Flash Gordon things back to back, yeah. followed by then there'd be an intermission, and followed by both Dalek movies back to back. Fantastic. And this was on, you know, when, when big screens were big screens. I mean, nowadays in cinemas, they're all been chopped up into four or five different smaller oh, screens. Yes. But this is when you, you used to have enormous theatres with a, a circle up above. Uh, and we used, to sit in the, we used to sit in the front row, me and my mates, watching this. I must have done it about between 10 or 12 times, I think. And so when you, once having watched that, all the, you know, the glitz and the colour, to try and watch something like The Daleks, or the mutants, whatever it was called. It's it's a come down. Yes, it's a bit of a come down. But having having seen the Daleks recently, I think it's brilliant. I mean, all right, that, all the the boring stuff of Ian and his cardigan wandering through those caves could get you down a bit. Uh, but seen Edge of Destruction for the first time. I'm also I've steeled myself to work my way through all the um, reconstructions. Oh my god! Which has been quite. Ba- I mean, Marco bloody polar. <laughs> um, Oh, we're now, it's episode 27, and we're at Waystation 46. <laughs> you know, God, because you, you, know, you, you see some of the, the, the set photos of Marco Polo. It's gorgeous, and all these rich reds yeah. and blues and greens. And it's, uh, it was bloody awful, isn't it? So why are you watching the recons and not the, just listening to the audios? I can't handle audios. Oh, really? I've bought a few of the BBC CDs with the audios on, but... Because it's written for, and this is not specifically because I've got anything against audio, so I was brought up on radio drama on the BBC. But because it's written for TV and not for radio, I think there's a, there's a clear difference where it's um, it's just not as easy to listen to a TV version on the radio. I got when I was a kid for Christmas the um, the LP of the soundtrack of uh, Genesis. Oh yeah, which which I I managed to listen to perfectly well. Possibly because I had no other option then. You know, there's, there's, apart from that and the target books, you, you couldn't you couldn't access Doctor Who in those days um, uh, between seasons. But I just can't handle it. So having actually having something on the screen where they put the um, they put say telly snaps on, drawing in various orders while they're going through the big the big finish, loose cannon reconstructions. At least it it doesn't make it it doesn't make it brilliant, but at least it makes it slightly less be- less unbearable than the audios. I'm the other way around. I couldn't handle the reconstruction, so I listened to the audios and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the audios more. I know in some of them now the audios they've got and they got people doing 
Like Peter Purvis doing linking. Yeah, Purvis yeah. is doing, and Wendy Perry's done a couple. Fraser Hines is on them. So they've got you know got all the original actors um, as main narrators. So uh, I've just found the Hartnell ones in particular work really well on the CD in an audio form, as opposed to the reconstructions where you know you you're almost willing the image to move after being static on the screen for 35 seconds or yeah. 40 seconds you can oh for god's sakes change where i can just plug in the headphones and on the way to work i'll listen to uh occasionally when you know doing a podcast about it i'll, I'll listen to them on the train was it before we started recording or after when you were asking me um do you ever go re you know reevaluate stories mm. much later mm. it was a story recording wasn't it yeah I watched Sensor Rights the other week um, for the first time when I was at Compost Mentis. <laughs> and I, I love that. Yeah, that's got a terrible reputation, hasn't it? Whereas, whereas Reign of Terror, God. Bobbins beyond belief. Dal- Dalek Invasion of Earth. I couldn't. Um, apart from the very first episode, rather under, under that bridge with the um, d- d- bodies in the river poster, is. Now that truly. It doesn't. Does pale by comparison with the um, the film with the movie yeah, version. Yeah, looks awesome, especially with the Robo Men. Yeah, I, I mean the the <laughs> that Robo Men music on uh, from the film. Mm. You, you don't play that because I can't get it out of my head. You know, dum da 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 dum dum da da dum da. Really effective. Whereas you see the Robo Men in this, and it's like. <laughs> You know that you know that ice warrior who looks as if he's he's sort of permanently got his head slanted leaning on one side. It's the same one from Warriors of the Deep. Yeah, it's yeah. Slanted, they're not very effective. <laughs> when you said watch the sensorized, because the way I got through it was one episode a day, and I, and I enjoyed that more as opposed to a two and a half hour stretch where you know I think alcohol you'd need to get through it. So how are you watching it? Yes, actually that that would probably be better. But now I'm watching it, say the whole DVD. In a weekend, okay. and sort of blitzing it, watching the story, then watching the um, the DVD extras, and then and up until the point where I get too bored to continue, mm. listening to the commentary with the um, you know the info text on, because I can't I can't watch the info text while the actual story is being played, because I I can't concentrate on two things at once at my age. But I'm I'm currently going through a really boring period. What's that? The Web Planet. Oh, I'm so sorry. The Crusade, apart from the Julian Glover, Gene Marsh bits. That's, oh Lord, you think they keep the Space Museum, but delete Dalek Master Plan. Yeah. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Or did they rediscover Space Museum? They, they shouldn't have done anyway. Followed by, I can't, the chase. <laughs> That's awful, the chase, isn't it? <laughs> apart, from the, <laughs> apart from the end, where they, Ian and Barbara uh, leave. Remember the Batman TV show? It's like that the whole campery around that TV show has been applied to six episodes of Doctor Who, i.e. the chase. Yeah. Last night, I watched the first episode of Galaxy 4, and I had to have people pulling me back to stop myself throwing myself out the window. <laughs> <laughs> just clarify this. You're watching a reconstruction, not the recovered one. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, in a, a secret yeah. facility in Wigan somewhere. How did they think that the Chumblies could ever be, you know, oh, the new Daleks. Especially with those sound effects, like they're farting all day. It was a different time. It was, it was a different time. It was a stone age. <laughs> <laughs> now, unfortunately, this means that I've got coming up, what, Galaxy 4, Mission to the Unknown, Mythmakers, Master Plan, Massacre, 
Up until Ark, everything's going to be reconstructions. God, that's depressing. I'll try the audio of the massacre. I've never watched any of Masterplan before. I'm looking forward to that. It's not bad, actually. I've always thought of it a bit like, um, not Web Planet. Um, what's the fat last Troughton one? Uh, War Games. The War Games, which is so long, and I've watched it so many times, I ended up falling asleep in the middle of it because it's. My memory of it is all. Uh, you know, ending up in some trench, World War One trenches and getting captured and then escaping and then captured again. So I've never actually seen the decent stuff at the end where, you know, he, the Doctor meets the um, the war chief or the warlord and they, there's this moment of recognition between them. So I'll, I'll probably be stealing myself for that. Uh, in the old videotape trading days of, of the late 80s and 90s, uh, somebody in Sydney when uh, was saying, oh, can I, can I grab a copy of the war games? Yep, no worries. And they give him a four-hour tape. And when this person would play it back on this four-hour tape, there'd only be three episodes. Episode one, episode nine, and episode ten. He goes, no, you don't, you don't need the rest of it. <laughs> the novelization's quite good. It's to the point, isn't it? 128 pages condensed down. I remember trailing my mother. We'd, we'd gone to a trip to Adelaide, and I'd bought a number of Doctor Who novelizations, and I picked up the war games, and I, my mother was walking around the streets of Adelaide shopping, and I trailed behind her reading the novelization, much to, no doubt, her annoyance. But uh, that's how I got through the book. 60s Doctor Who is, is actually amazing, isn't it? It's so varied. If you can get past the black and white thing and the slightly stilted stagey acting as opposed to now, these days, it's amazingly good. I mean, the, the, the even the subtlety bit of the relationships between the three of them. I loved... I mean, I've, I've never been able to get along with Susan. I think she's very unearthly, but they just wrote her nothing. And then, and then immediately she leaves. And they start writing decent lines for Vicky. So I think it's clearly the fault of the writers. I, mean, I don't know if someone thought, oh, Carolyn Ford's um, quit. We'd be, uh, maybe Barry Lambert said to the writers, you, you, you should up your game. Start writing decent lines for the um, young girl companion. Uh, it's amazing. And some of the best things are Jibberum. I'm quite a fan of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I watched it for years, but I'm quite, and it's noticeable that in the latter seasons they start coming becoming incredibly pretentious with their episode titles. Like they'd call instead of instead of calling an episode um, "Landing on Mars" or something, they'll call it uh, something like "Sacrifice of Angels" or some biblical or Shakespearean quotation, and it can't be denied. Or death in heaven. Yeah, death in heaven. Uh, there's some of the um, episode titles in the 60s are brilliant. I'm just looking at Massacre, Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve here. Episodes are, call, are called War of God, The Sea Beggar, Priest mm. of Death, Bell of Doom. That's glorious. And the, what, what the episode the episodes called in Marco Polo? The Roof of the World, The Singing Sands, 500 Eyes. Journey to Cathay. They're probably better educated back then than they are now. Well, maybe the writers were, not so sure if the audience were. The writers, yes, yes, yes. I wonder if Vicky, though, you mentioned that a bit better lines because season two of Doctor Who had a different script that it had Dennis Spooner, so maybe oh, that's a point. Yeah, yeah, he had a different uh, style and approach to what uh, Mister Whitaker had, so maybe that was it as well. Yes, and of course, there's only two stories for Susan there, wasn't there, in that season? So and there were leftovers from the previous one, so maybe that was it as well. I've thought many times about doing the long journey. But I get easily distracted with other rubbish in terms of television, so... You don't mean visiting Perth, then? No, no, no Perth. 
I haven't been there for about 13 years. I mean, there was a lot of South Africans when I was there, but uh, it sounds like Stop it's been... going on about South Africans. <laughs> no, 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 they're all right. Uh, what was I talking about? Uh, you're talking about doing the long journey. The long journey, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but I get distracted with other TV shows. I just started watching, um, what's it called? 11 the new... Uh, Stephen, Stephen King, King adaptation. Oh, what's that? A quick summary. Hopefully it won't spoil anything about uh, a bloke who finds a portal in a cupboard and this other bloke uh, who's dying of cancer uh, says to him, go back and change uh, so Kennedy doesn't get shot. And it's about how... Oh, I yeah, see. So, yeah. And it's about how the past, and I'm using my air quotes here, is pushing back on, on this interloper uh, trying to come back and change things. So it's, um, it's timey-wimey, but so far in a good way. I've often thought that if time travel was real, that the two most populated uh, points in history full of time travellers jumping all over each other to try and do something would be the death of Christ and JFK getting shot. It would be swarming with time travellers just trying to get a bird's eye view of everything. There's a book just come out a few months ago about a time traveller going back and saving John Lennon. So they're all they're all in it. I'd personally go back to February 1964 to see whether Marco Polo <laughs> really is really isn't as boring as it appears just on audio. I'd go back to 1975 to a uh, loading dock at BBC Enterprises when those 130 <laughs> cans from Australia come over, back up the van, and uh, drive up to my own uh, storage facility in Wigan or probably North Wales somewhere. That's what I'd do. Do you find? There's too much TV to fit into your spare time. Yes. yes. Like podcasts, you can't. You can't do with it. the best people in the world, you can't listen to every podcast, so you have to be selective. So many. I asked for DVD box sets for Christmas these days. I've got so many stuck on a shelf, which I've not had time to get around to yet. I've got to watch this. I've got this and that series recording on um, the. Um, the recorder. On, on, yes, on the thing on the TV. Yeah, yeah no, you're absolutely right. Um, I'm resorting to watching television on my phone on a train. <laughs> Which is pretty distracting when you're watching things like The Walking Dead. See people, you know, getting eaten and that sort of stuff. And I'm either feeling nauseous one minute or jumping out of my skin the next. And people are thinking I'm having fits on the train. Obviously, because I'm listening to 42 to Doomsday. I listen to most podcasts on the, the underground on the way to and from work. I have to be very selective because there are certain, certain podcasts where people, they, I don't know what the technical word for it is, but they record it quite, almost quite quietly. So that... Um, even regardless of how high you t- you turn it up on the on your uh, whatever you're listening to on the train, um, you can't hear it over the sound. <laughs> of the, the rails go over the wheels go over the tracks. I don't think we have that problem. I have increasingly found myself staying up later. I don't. I mean, I don't have the luxury of Mark of taking a train into work because I'm relatively close to work, so I drive in. But I don't have the luxury of watching anything uh, during the day. It's it's all left for late evening when my family have gone to bed. And I've found over the last few weeks watching uh, just sort of you know going through the x-files box sets that i do have that i'm up uh, until you know 11 30 12 12 30 a quarter past one. Oh my god uh, and uh, and you know watching a couple of episodes in the evening and it's just i mean i can get up in the morning at you know seven and get ready for work but um it is too much there is too much to consume these days i mean i've got piles and piles of books to read which I've just come to the recent realisation that I'll be dead before I've read half of them, unfortunately. <laughs> it's just a fact. Yeah. And th- there's so much television, there's so much good quality television to watch, uh, apart from you know going back 25 years and reliving, reliving my relative youth with the X-Files. Uh, there's just so much on at the moment. And you know the, the, the American TV season is cranking up again in the next week or two. 
couple of weeks and um, it's just going to be more. It's just a tsunami of good television and it's just, just it's impossible to do it without taking time off work or, you know, going on to government benefits and doing it that way. Hey, that's a great idea. Hold on, I'm just going to ring up work now. I'm not coming in for the next three weeks. Daredevil's about to start. <laughs> or House of Cards Series 4. The truth is, I, I do find myself watching, staying up later and later at night, but I'm sorry, I'm, I realise... I'm actually, I'm not just watching crap on TV. Mm. Why don't I watch... Um... The stuff you want to watch. Yeah, there's something that, that DVDs I've never watched, that I've had on my shelf for ages. I mean, there's still quite a few. You say that you're staying up later and later watching a lot of crap. What is what is the TV landscape like in Britain at the moment in terms of quality? I mean, we here in Australia will get, I suppose, uh, with the ABC, the ABC will cherry-pick the cream of the crop and there are certain pay TV stations here will get the, the, other, the, the rest. Um, so we sort of get a, a filtered version, but what is the TV landscape in the UK like right now? You probably know this, but when Doctor Who was this particular period, when it, the first Doctor's era was going out, before 64, we only had two channels in the UK, BBC, and which obviously is the, the licensed public service broadcaster, and ITV, which is the, um, the commercial. Yes. And 64, they're bringing BBC 2. Around the early 80s, they're bringing Channel 4, which is half commercial, half public surface broadcaster. Yes. Then in the... Oh, I think it must have been around about the turn of the 80s to the 90s, Rupert Murdoch arrives with Sky, um, and which is a satellite mm-hmm. channel. It's, it's, it's really... I mean, we do have cable over here, but it, it's less common than people... You can walk down a road and you'll see a forest of satellite dishes okay. on people's roofs. Um, and so I've got about between three or four hundred channels. Oh, God. So I spend most of the time flicking through them thinking, there's nothing on. Mm. <laughs> BBC is, is, as ever, is, is under constant fire. Yes. If they're not producing, um, you know, uh, Shakespeare, seasons of Shakespeare which only a, you know, a relatively small amount of the population is going to watch. They get criticised for um, not taking advantage of uh, the licence fee. People say, oh, well, if you're not going to put, put really decent stuff on that, you know, that wouldn't be commercially competitive, then we don't need you at all. So they go the other direction, start putting on reams of reality TV. And then they get criticised for, for saying, oh, you know, we, should, we shouldn't be paying for this with the licence fee. We should have something, some decent um, cultural stuff. Have I just contradicted myself there? Let's just forge on. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> if they're not getting the big ratings, they say, right, you're, you're uh, an anachronism, we need to get rid of you. If they are, if they are pushing for the big ratings, they get criticised for uh, dumbing down. Um, ITV, I don't... We, this is awful thing to say. I, I don't watch ITV. People used to say... In the 60s and 70s. Oh, my family didn't watch ITV because our parents thought that uh, commercial television was um, uh, vulgar. But I really don't watch it because it's, it's just relentless crap now. Channel 4 used to be very, qu- quite daring and almost avant-garde at times. I mean, they, I think on their, their opening night, they put on a film about um, something, you know, that, that would be bound to get Mary, Mary Whitehouse having a heart attack, like a lesbian kiss or something. But they've now become, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's the channel that Big Brother used to be on. 
and it's just rel- now it's relentless uh, list of these. You know these shows where they say it was the top one hundred something, and they'll they'll run clips of I don't know top one hundred uh, sci-fi uh, TV shows. And then they'll run little clips, and then with Z-list celebrities commenting on them in between. We get the same here on Channel Nine on the commercial networks. Yeah, I hardly watch it. So I do find myself watching a lot of American stuff. I mean, I've got things like Sky Atlantic. Which has got things like Games of Game of Thrones on. In fact, that's that's the main reason I keep that. BBC, I mean, still puts out some decent stuff. Um, like obviously, like Doctor Who, uh, ITV. You see, it's become more. ITV used to be. I don't know if this, this is probably might be boring a Doctor Who audience, but ITV used to be regional, so you'd have. Um, like was it Anglia Tyne Tees? Anglia in in Ang- in East Anglia Tyne Tees, which is up in the northeast. Thames Television down in London, and one of the one of the biggest, which was Granada up in the northwest, which is Manchester. And what would happen is you'd you'd have your own regional programming, and then let's say if you're living in London, your local station because it was so popular, you'd probably buy in Coronation Street. So everyone would get Coronation Street at half seven on um, a weekday evening. Um, but otherwise you'd get uh, regional programming. And we were looking in in Manchester when I was growing up because Granada was one of the most, was one of the powerhouses of the network. I mean, Granada produced um, Julian the Crown, Brideshead Revisited, and uh, the, you know, the Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes series so that was, i mean that's really that's really stuff where people tend to think of it and, and watch it and think uh oh isn't the bbc wonderful and then the commercial break comes in you actually it's not the bbc uh, and i used to really used to give the bbc run for their money but what happens every now and then is that the all these regional broadcasters their their licenses go up for renewal and it used to be that they have to you know demonstrate that they were you know, dedicating a certain amount of time to uh, you know things that you might consider to be enriching for society or for culture, but now it's you know you're effectively bidding for who can you know who can either un- undercut someone or um, bid over the odds for something, and so you're just going for ratings. So it's so it's it's you know it's 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 lots, so much reality TV. And this is why this is one of the reasons I think why Doctor Who has the problems with its ratings, because it's on at the same time as this X Factor on ITV, almost at the same time. It follows about two hours of Strictly Come Dancing on the BBC. I mean, this is what Saturday nights have been reduced to now. It's a good idea if they're going to go back to starting in Easter. But but part of the landscape, they don't seem to buy in as many American shows as they used to. Because I think those tend to be monopolised now by the cable and satellite channels, mm-hmm. rather than the you know the free-to-air terrestrial channels. So you'd never get something now like Game of Thrones on on one on you know one of the free-to-air channels. Or what's that? Um, what's that Sherlock Holmes one they're doing? Are they uh, in Elementary. Elementary. Yeah, you'd never get something like that on. It's probably someone now thinking actually that's on BBC Two at eleven o'clock at night. You'd never be wrong. Elementary's on a commercial station. I think it's on Channel Ten. I think. But uh, Game of Thrones is the most pirated uh, show in Australia because uh, Rupert has it locked up on uh, 
his or our version of Sky, which is called Foxtel. Oh right. And uh, you have to pay extra for the the package, which is full of ads. So um, a lot of people uh, pirate it, and what they're trying to do here is uh, block uh, things uh, here and there in terms of you know websites and stuff like that. I don't know how successful it will be. Mm. I doubt it very much because Australia is the biggest downloader of illegal uh, material in the world. Uh, mainly because our television is 30 years behind. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, what's the TV landscape like over there? Well, you notice I, I, I avoid saying down there. Can't go for stereotypes. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you the question. Netflix launched here last year and has been a, a big disruptor in terms of our uh, televisional landscape. And we've also had another one called Stan as well, which is um, which launched, I think, a little bit earlier. And they're about $10 a month each. And Foxtel here is very used to be very expensive. Like the premium package is like 135 bucks a month with, you know, premium high definition and sport and all that sort of stuff. Uh, since those have launched, the Foxtel subscribers have really reduced to numbers. Uh, I, to be honest, I hardly watch any of the commercial television at all. Uh, shows like The X Factor you mentioned are big over there. Uh, Strictly Come yeah. Dancing are big over there. They'd be lucky, our local uh, versions of those, we be lucky to scrape a million... Uh, a week to be perfectly honest Australia's Got Talent which is the biggest uh, violation of the Trades Practices mm. Act ever because the hosts and the judges certainly don't have any it gets about 700,000 800,000 a night or whenever it's screened so the numbers that you have over there in terms of your reality shows are huge compared to what the, they just don't get the numbers over here mm. I've got Fetch TV that's right I've got 40 or 50 channels I'd never bloody watch it I think the only time I watched it over the, my holidays was uh, 80s Music Hour. <laughs> that was about it on MTV. Well, interestingly, I've, I've just started Netflix this month. Ah, okay. I, for, for about three years ago, my DVD player, come recorder, broke. And I've been mean to replace it and mean to replace it. So I've been watching stuff on my PC. And I finally got around to doing it in January. And I've always thought people say, oh, you know, the original, what you imagine to be television landscape's going to change once everyone watches it on broadband. And I've been thinking, that'll never happen. You know, maybe some, a few tech-savvy kids will do that, but they won't. Then I, I realised it's in the back of my new DVD player. There's a, a USB port, or whatever they call them, you know, to link to the internet. Ethernet port, yeah. Now I've, I've already gone for Netflix. Yeah. The only thing that worries me about things like Netflix is that it's not like saying, you know, you've got... Um, you, you you plug into the internet and you've got access to a load of stuff because because you've got a choice to say, oh, do I subscribe to Netflix? Do I subscribe to Amazon Prime? Do I subscribe? I mean, the, the, this this brand new Star Trek series they're putting on is going to be on. Oh, um, yes, on the internet. Is that Columbia Star Trek? CBS, I think it'll be. Yeah, think, oh, I'm not going to pay for all those every month. I'm just going to say that's the beauty of the box set when it's all d- done and dusted on television or the internet. Yes, yeah, oh, but I'll wait for the. D- I know. I want to watch this Man in the High Castle, whatever it's oh, called. Oh, yes, very good. But I don't, I don't particularly want to pay 70 quid a year to Amazon for it. I suppose I could buy more things off Amazon so I could get free mm. um, postage with it, but I'm not particularly in, in, inclined to. Now, what I find more interesting is, what was the TV landscape for you two when you were kids? You joke now about, oh, Australian TV is 30 years behind the time. Was, was it a, a great deal of stuff you brought in from the BBC? So I lived in the country, as I've, I've probably mentioned before, so we had precisely two channels. We had a local commercial network, which uh, brought in most of its content 
um, from the Metropolitan Majors. Ship shearing today. <laughs> <laughs> well, not not quite that bad. I mean, there were some. There was the local news, which may have been legislatively mandated. So that was uh, initially it was fifth. I remember in yes, the seventies yeah. it was like fifteen minutes, and then we'd go to the a commercial network of choice, which for Australians listening was Channel Seven. Uh, and there would be an afternoon show um, sponsored by the local department store, I remember, in between, uh, sandwiched in between Days of Our Lives and The Young and the Restless. Um, so that was the commercial network. And in the morning, um, I don't remember much about it in the morning because uh, I was watching uh, Sesame Street uh, uh, on the ABC. But in the afternoon, uh, there was definitely shows like Get Smart, Hogan's Heroes, uh, The Hardy Boys, Batman... Um, so all those sort of 70s shows networked in from the States, um, you know, in the evening, you'd watch The Bionic, or The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, you would, in the late 70s, I think we were getting Magnum, perhaps. So you, that was in the evening. And then the ABC, of course, uh, for me anyway, was the morning kids programs because I was very young. Uh, and then in the afternoon, I was getting a bit older in the sort of the late 70s, uh, like six or seven, you would be watching The Goodies. Um, I think, which is about at six o'clock mark from memory, and then Doctor Who would come on at six thirty, um, and then whatever was showing on on the ABC. Um, you know, I used to watch. Was it Pot Black? I remember watching oh, Pot yes. Black. <laughs> uh, I used to love Pot Black. Snooker, Snooker yes, in the UK <laughs> in black and white. <laughs> and uh, I remember watching Blake Seven of a Friday evening uh, in the very late nineteen seventies, or maybe even nineteen eighties. But it was a mixture of commercial fare. For me, um, and 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 some stuff on the on the ABC. Have you heard the the famous line from Pop? Yes. <laughs> for those of you watching in black and white, the blue ones, the blue ball's the one behind the pink ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's comedy gold. How late were you getting things like Doctor Who and Blake Seven? Behind a year, I think, wasn't it? Oh, really? I think for season eighteen, they held that over for about eighteen months. So what they did was they held it over till like nineteen eighty two. And then they screened that and then went straight into Davison's first uh, series straight after that. So they held it over on purpose on that. I think for maybe it was six months for season 20 as well. Season 21 actually not do too badly. I think we got that fairly quick. I think we got that starting in uh, March 84. Uh, season 22 was delayed six months. Season 23 was delayed, well, obviously, had a, a delay by Mr. Grade, but it didn't get here till 87. So um, we're usually about a year behind. But I was um, getting around that by getting people over there to tape the episodes and sending them over. I mean, part of the problem, Mark, was that the, the ABC was strip, stripping the shows, you know, Monday to Thursday. Um, yeah. And you'd have a new series f- finished off in about six weeks. Uh, whereas, you know, realis- really, it should have been done over six months. ABC is your BBC, isn't it? Correct. Yes. It used to actually, we used to have a licence fee, didn't we, Mark? And then that was, uh, I think the new Labour government in 72 stopped that. There'd be one person. I think Goff got rid of it, yeah. It's time, he said. <laughs> it's time to stop paying for your television. Well, you talk about um, the Buster Crab Flash Gordon t- uh, movie serials. Channel 7 were playing those before we used to go to school. About 83, 84, we used to watch those in the morning. And play- they were playing black and white Flash Gordon serials uh, before we used to go to school. They'd play like a music clip, obviously something Australian. It was either In Excess, Burn For You, uh, Cold Chisel, what was it on? Uh, Flame Trees. <laughs> and this is all going over your head, Doc. Just, just shake and nod your head. And uh, I think The Good Die Young by The Vinyls as well. And yeah, Brady Bunch, we used to get that. Gilligan's Island, that was five o'clock, used to get 
Gilligan's Island. Put it this way, Doc. The ABC would screen the finest of British television. So whether it was, you know, Brideshead Revisited from, you know, Granada, it was on the ABC. If it was uh, anything else, t- take your pick. I, Claudius, would have been shown. Perhaps I would have been shown on the ABC. And your commercial networks just had your commercial stuff. You know, Brady Bunch, uh, The Love Boat, Magnum, all American fare, very, very Miami Vice. Yeah, very, very little in the way of British stuff because anything, anything that had an accent from the British Isles was shown on the ABC. And our rating season used to start in February, so we used to get things nearly a year uh, later on than they were shown in the US. And they used to hold it over on purpose, and so now it doesn't work anymore. They say fast track from the US, but really it's not. So the X Files wasn't fast tracked; it was delayed a week, and they were just downloading it. <coughs> well, hmm. we we did get some Aussie TV in Britain when, when I was growing up. I'm so sorry. What was that? <laughs> they still broadcast Neighbours and Home and Away every day. I've not watched. I've got to not watch that since I was at university. Though. And oh lord, takes me back. The Sullivans. Oh yes. Now the Sullivans. My nana and granddad loved <laughs> the Sullivans, and when they came over here in '82, we had to take them on a Sullivans tour. Uh, my mum had to ring up Channel 9 to find out where the houses were. There's a house in Camberwell, and uh, there's a picture somewhere of my grandparents outside the Sullivan's house with the neighbours looking for the window going, oh, not more bloody bombs. I was just wondering if they have the Australian equivalent of Matt waiting there to get them a guide around the, um, <laughs> the set. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember, and bear in mind, they, they haven't broadcasted this in the UK since 1972. I'm old enough to remember Skippy. Oh, God. I mean, it's appalling television, but it's a fascinating uh, historical snapshot of where Australia, how Australia viewed itself in a sense, you know, back in the, I think it was filmed in the 60s, wasn't it, Mark? It was late 60s, yeah. What was that, Rob? (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Thanks. (laughs) What was that, Rob? Mark's fallen down a well. (laughs) (laughs) He can bloody well stay down there. I was up one morning at about three or four uh, in the morning of uh, late last year, not feeling particularly well, and I flicked on Channel Nine, which is one of the big commercial networks here. And in the morning, they they were filling in the hours with episode an episode of Skippy, and then there was an episode of uh, Danger Man, and then there was an episode of The Thunderbirds, which hey, that's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. I was in agony, but uh, it was you know, I was sort of soothed slightly by those three shows. Do you know there was actually a computer game of Neighbours? No. On the Commodore 64. Mark, oh, it's not, you've God. picked that up off your podcast, haven't you? I just downloaded a whole heap of old Commodore 64 magazine scans. I will find it and post it somewhere. It doesn't look very good. It looks like... Remember the game Paperboy? It looks like <laughs> that, but even worse. You have to avoid kangaroos. We used to get a lot of British shows on the ABC. God bless them. Uh, and thank goodness we did. And we still do. We still do. Remember, Tripods was screened on Channel 7 here because it was a co-production. Oh, the same way that... Um, wasn't the first series of Doctor Who co-production with CBC in Canada? They set up a Patreon account for that. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Canada. <laughs> That's the other bizarre thing about... The worldwide distribution of Doctor Who podcasts. Why is, should we say, one of the most prominent ones in Canada? And not only in Canada, but the only one in Canada, as far as I'm aware. It's longevity, surely, isn't it? They were one of the first ones, or one of the first Doctor Who podcasts. And I I suppose if you're the first one uh, in the market, or one of the earliest ones, you just build up that loyal loyal audience. It's like a comfortable pair of slippers. I'm not that old. (laughs) No. No. I love my slippers. I don't have slippers, sadly. What other shows did you get over there, Doc? Uh, Flying Doctors? Did you get used to get that? 
Yes, but like the Sullivan's, so they didn't watch. Prisoner? Not the Prisoner, but uh, Prisoner. You used to call it Cell Block H. Prisoner Cell Block H? Well, bugger me gently. I live about five minutes down the road from where they used to film that. <gasps> if I come over, can you, can you get me a tour around the set? It's very easy, because nobody's hardly in it these days. So, uh, And I'm also about ten minutes away from where they film Neighbours. So when my cousins came over here, I said, oh, where's Neighbours? said, oh, I have no idea. I've never been here. It's down the road. I've never been there. And I said, just follow the backpacker buses. To, uh, you know, they, they sort of drive out there every day. He just borrowed my bike and he rode off to have a look at where Neighbours has been filmed. And yeah, the last house that sold there went for like half a million dollars. You have to have it in your contract that you have to allow filming in that court. Uh, Mark, your, your parents immigrated to Australia. Did uh, watch it? As did I. Yes, yes. They didn't leave you behind as a five-year-old. Um, or six. Did uh, did did watching Australian programs, uh, you know, help make the decision about which country they would, you know, <laughs> flee uh, Brit- Britain to? <laughs> was it the, was it the wonderful vista, you know, uh, vistas of Skippy that said, "Let's go to Australia." It was either that or Canada. Apparently, that they got uh, approved to go to Canada and realised how bloody cold it was over there. My mother has got cousins who um, their branch of the family uh, emigrated to uh, Canada. And they've been out to Australia visiting a couple of times in the last 10 years. And they tell literal horror stories about just being snowed in. Just when the snow comes, that's it. Basically, it's game over. You just you can't leave the house. You can't, it can't get to work or this. It's just impossible. So I'm glad that my branch of the family, my two branches of the family, uh, came south instead of going north, even further north. I can't remember watching much Australian television. I remember watching All the Rivers Run because I used to be on at lunchtimes. My mum used to watch it and I used to occasionally watch it with her. But in terms of my first Australian television, I think it was the 1980 Grand Final uh, with Richmond and Collingwood. And when Richmond won the flag, I said, that's my team uh, forevermore. <laughs> They're a bunch of winners. And I haven't won a flag since, Doc. 36 years and I'm still waiting. Oh, is this Snakes and Ladders, is it? Or... Yes, yeah. <laughs> Australian rules football, Doc. I got to confess to being a quarter Canadian. My <laughs> mum's dad was born in Canada. Would you like us yeah. to give you some money for nothing, Doc? <laughs> and chicks for free. Three months of the year I go around <laughs> apologising to people. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people go through this. I went through a phase of suddenly being fascinated by exploring my family tree. I sort of lost heart after a while. After the, you know, you got two parents, four grandparents, whatever, four times, um, you know, eight uh, great-great-grandparents. And once the um, once it gets far too wide to fit on a, a, a reasonable sheet of paper on a printer, you, don't, you stop doing it, really. But um, <clears throat> we found that he, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother emigrated from Manchester to Canada. And you think, oh, that's, that's bad enough. But we looked at the passenger lists on the, the ships going across. And she went across before he did. Um, no, no, he went he went across on his own. Uh, presumably to, I think he got some kind of job in Alberta, I think, to do with forests. And then he must have said, settled down something and said, right, come over with the kids. And she came across with herself, with two little babies. I mean, you wouldn't... I don't think you'd inflict that on your wife now, would you? Just oh, no. you know, come across on your own. Um, but eventually they all... I mean, I've got a, a branch of my dad's family about three generations ago, about, about 1850s or something, all suddenly emigrated from Oldham to Australia. Apparently to teach the Australians a, a, a brand new way of making bricks. 
and then after, after about 10 years they all came back again i've got this this vision of, of them sitting on a beach with a sort of knotted <laughs> handkerchief on the head and they that's oh it's, it's too hot here mother we gotta go on <laughs> bloody hell chuck we're going home <laughs> i think that one of my great 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 aunts was the, the first child to have their birth registered in sydney or something Oh. A long time ago, but it's, 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 my family's basically um, a history of uh, going out to live in the empire and then deciding that no, actually, we prefer Manchester. We'll go back home again. Where the washing never dries, <laughs> <laughs> where it's darker and colder for longer. So, oh dear. Oh, and it goes dark very quickly. When I went last time, I went back. I just got off the plane. I said, "Oh, it's about four o'clock in the afternoon. I'll just go out for a quick walk and try and you know get myself over this jet lag." I walked outside and it was pitch black. And I came back in the house and said, "That was quick." I said, "Yeah, I can't see anything." <laughs> I wasn't joking about the empire being a, being an attempt to get away from rainy countries. If you think about it, if you look at the old empire, Canada really is the only old country in the whole place that's colder than Britain, isn't it? So what is what? Yeah. It's not. It's not um, an an attempt at military glory or at uh, gaining trade routes. It's an attempt to get it, to find somewhere warmer to live. It's the history of imperialism. So, Doc, uh, Dave Kitchen, uh, when he found out you're appearing on this uh, podcast, he said, can you please ask him this question? So, Is this cultural advisor, Dave Kitchen? It is, or pod tart, as we call him. He's uh, tarting himself around to all these different podcasts. Remember, he was with us first. <laughs> hey, can I ask a question, Mark? Yes. Uh, just to go back to the, the British thing. The way British people say the word us, you have a Z on the end of it. Is that a British thing or a Welsh thing? Us. No, you go us. I say us. Because Tomb of the Cybermen, you become like us. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. People down south say us. Say, say us. Yeah. Us, as if they're pronouncing the U as an A. And people up north say us. But that's... Uh, how else would you pronounce it? I'm just a poor colonial. I've got no idea. Us. 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 Surely you'd only pronounce something us if it was spelled U-S-S, wouldn't you? True. I've got a blurred accent because I had a very broad Welsh accent until it was beaten out of me, so... There are some words that still come out a bit more Welshy, maybe? Welshy? I'll just put it down to the lax morals that we have in this country. So, What was David saying? What was David saying, Mark? This is addressed to you, Doc, so strap yourself in. On the Diddly Dumb podcast, you often made the point that fans should speak out when they don't like an episode. And this puts him in conflict with the, air quotes, If you're not liking every episode and supporting the show, you're with the terrorists, close quotes, bunch. Do you feel that the internet age has made fandom more intense in this way? No one seemed to care when we wrote critical letters to fanzines. Well, fanzines are only getting distributed to like 500 people as opposed to podcasts can go out to thousands. So, Doc, over to you. Was it TWB.2Bulletin? Oh, yes, we do know that. Mm. I was only aware that existed. I only became aware about two years ago. So maybe that's that answers it. No one... It was. It was a very small circle. Perhaps we even described it as a very small biscuit game of people. And it was, you know, it was something, shall we say, an argument that went on within the family. Mm. Uh, and within maybe the, where the, the only people in that room were the black sheep of the family. Uh, I don't think anyone cared. <laughs> when he's, David says that um, we make the point that if you don't like an episode, you should speak out. I don't think we, we might speak out in the sense of, you know, 
you should campaign against it. I meant in the sense of if you don't like it, you should say so. I mean, I, I, I don't think you should say, I didn't like this, therefore Stephen Moffat's evil. But just say, oh, no, I didn't like it, it wasn't my... Wasn't my cup of tea. A cup of tea. And, all right, I, we, there is a tendency to, having said that, to then do go, to go overboard and ripping the piss out of it. As long as you don't go too far. Uh, you remember when, in that awful Daleks in Manhattan, <laughs> they got criticised, and then someone said afterwards, oh, um... Oh, this is te- you've almost given Helen Helen was it Helen Rayner who wrote yeah. it. You've almost given Helen Rayner a nervous breakdown by. Um, well, I'm I'm not I'm not sure if that's true or not, but and and obviously there are some extremes, but I mean if I was a writer, for Doctor, you, you can imagine. Oh, yeah, of course I'm going to go and see on the forum see what the fans are saying about me. But I would think the best thing is not to do it because either the fans are a valid sounding board or they're not. They can't only be a valid sounding board if they're saying they like it. If you read a, a, a fan saying, oh, I thought your this story was the best thing I've seen for years, and you think, oh, yes, I'm, I'm glad that, that, that uh, this you know this validates me because the fans are saying good things about me. You go click on another page and it says, I thought this was a story was the worst thing I've heard for years. You can't then say, oh, fans, what do they know? Although you probably would. I mean, I'm, I'm almost reluctant to discuss this because one of the unspoken rules of the Diddly Dub podcast is that it's about our opinions and not the opinions of other people. I mean, one of the things that turns me off, not always, but can turn me off podcasts, is when they're they're constantly referencing what other fans are saying on the forums. Now, I, I, I say I don't do this. I'm sure that anyone, if they try, can find an example of my doing it. But I consciously try to avoid doing it. And I'm fully aware of the irony in uh, me complaining about people who complain about um, other people. But let's let's say you're you're, into, you're reviewing Heaven Sent or Heaven Sint. <laughs> tell us what you think about it. Don't tell us what people on the forums are saying about it. Because it's never, um, I like it and so do all the fans on the forums. And it, it, it's never, I love Stephen Moffat and all the fans on the forums love, me t- love him too. Because I think as far as fans are concerned, the fans, I'm doing air quotes there, is shorthand for, when you say, oh, the fans are saying this, it's shorthand for the crazies. Now, I, I, I don't know if people do this consciously or not, but I think the reason for it is that it doesn't matter how silly your own views are. If you're able to portray the opposing points of view as the preserve of the crazies, then your own opinions must be the right ones, because you, by you know, uh, by extrapolation, must be one of the good people. If you're not one of the crazies, you must be one of the sensible people. Therefore, your views must be worth listening to. And if you if you're portraying yourself as taking a brave stand against a crowd of crazy fans, somewhere out in cyberspace, then you yourself must be, you know, very very brave and outspoken. But it, but in fact, I I find that very often. The opposing argument doesn't even exist. When you say, let's say you're a big fan of, I don't know, let's say Russell T. Davis, and you say, oh, the fans on the forums, they're all calling for him to be sacked because he's rubbish. Uh, it's possibly actually no more than maybe... 15 people. Yeah, f- yeah well, I was going to say five or 15 <laughs> people in one little corner yeah. of Gallifrey Base saying it. Um, 
And if it, if it's so few people, why why even bother to mention them? I mean, there are people on Gallifrey Base who are adv- probably adv- advocating um, uh, that w- that the vote should be taken away from women, but you don't you don't ca- characterise fandom as being well. I was going to say you don't characterise Doctor Who fandom as being misogynistic. We probably do actually, don't you? But not for that reason. I mean, my point is, if you're writing a blog or you're recording a podcast about Doctor Who, for your point of view to be validated, you don't need to set up an angry crowd of straw men on forums supposedly raging against it. The fact that it's your opinion on its own ought to be enough for you. Now, I know when you, when you podcast, you can't avoid... I don't know if you do this, but you can't avoid feeling the temptation to try to grow your audience. This is going back to what you are saying about... David was saying about... You know, should you, you know, you sh- if you don't like it, you should say so. You shouldn't feel, um, oh, I, I, I mustn't say that in case I come across as negative. But when you podcast, you can't avoid feeling the temptation to try to grow your audience by tailoring, tailoring your opinions to what you think they want to hear. Or say by discussing topics you think will be popular. Because you know, I think all of us, if we're honest as podcasters, are, we're always checking our feed stats to see oh, how many people out there are actually bothering to listen to us. You even, I once even heard the guys on Radio Free Hockey <laughs> saying, uh, oh, I was checking the podcast's feed stats today. Now, admittedly, they, they probably open, open up their page and see that 100,000 people have, have um, listened to them today. Whereas I open mine, it's about, uh, you know, one um, one man left it, left it running on the, on the uh, radio while he was... Um, Washing up or something. I think it's natural because no one wants to feel they're being ignored. But I think you need to keep in mind why you're podcasting in the first place. And if it's in the hope of, of you know acquiring for yourself a media profile, so then fine, go ahead and restrict yourself to only saying what's popular. If it's just that you know you want to get stuff off your chest in congenial company, either to say, oh, wasn't that brilliant, or wasn't that rubbish then it, it, it doesn't really matter if you only have a very tiny audience. I mean, I, I myself originally started blogging as a way of saying whatever I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it, and at whatever length I wanted to say it, without having to answer to some ainly retentive forum moderator. I mean, as, a, as if someone who is a petty bureaucrat for, his, for himself for a living... Uh, I don't see why anyone who's who's a Doctor Who fan, uh, what will be my on, online role? Shall I, you know, shall I do a podcast? Uh, shall I write a blog about merchandise? I don't know. What I'll do is I'll I'll play the role of fandom's petty little bureaucrat. Ah, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, which effectively means oh, you'll ban everyone whose face doesn't fit, and uh, you end up with a forum full of people who spend their life trotting out accepted wisdom. How do we get onto that? Oh, so why, why do we pod? Why do you two podcast? <laughs> <laughs> because no one else in the household is interested in Doctor Who, so it's either I mutter to myself in the corner and go increasingly mad about it, or break the keyboard sending messages, emails to my friends. Yeah. Uh, or I, you know, just chat away to, chat away with Mark about it about a given topic every two or three weeks. I think it's just an outlet, really, just to express. You know my thoughts and 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 maybe get some feedback from some, from, from from listeners. I mean it's it's not an ego thing. I mean I you know I'm, I'm a relatively shy and retiring type, so I'm I'm not out there looking for 
acclaim or uh, you mm. know, accolades or anything like that. It's I want to engage in in a conversation with you know Mark and then and then with the listeners. And if I say something that is uh, controversial or negative or against the grain, well then so be it. But as as long as it's my honest opinion, then I can't see anything wrong with that. I think Doctor Who fandom. Um, is in danger or has been in danger for you know since the internet age come across us of, of splintering into 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 echo chambers where people uh, can be yeah. people's views can be catered for by listening to only listening to particular podcasts going onto particular threads on particular forums and uh, and buying particular fanzines um, we see the same phenomena in say America where political and media commentators have been saying for a number of years that if you're a Republican voter, you don't have to expose yourself to differing views because you can go uh, and, and watch Fox TV, listen to a right-wing radio shock jock, and then have a look at a right-wing website, and the same for the Democrats, without having your views challenged about the world. And that is a increasingly sterile uh, aspect of American political life, and it can be something that... It has to be something I think the Doctor Who fandom avoids. Now, I may have set up a bit of a straw man there, but, you know, I, I think that... As long as the views that you're expressing are honestly held and you're not really tearing someone apart or tearing something apart, because as we've always said, as people constantly say, no one goes out to make a terrible episode of Doctor Who. It's just a confluence of different events and factors. But um, as long as you have your honestly held views and, uh, and, and you're, you're fair-minded as, as much as anyone can be in this, in this life, um, you know, get out there and share your, share your opinions. You hear this a lot. No one goes out to make... A bad episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, but we're not. If I say, oh, I did. I thought, um, like the moon's a, the moon's an egg or whatever it was called. Kill the moon. Was a bad episode. Actually, up, up until the the moon turning into an egg, I think it was quite a good episode. Well, let's say, all right, I thought the um the forest of the night or whatever it was called was a bad episode. Uh, I'm not saying that the writer sat down and thought, right, how can I really set out to write a bad episode? But having Written what he said. I mean, no one, no one thinks that if you, if you, if you read a book and you don't like it, you should, you should keep quiet about it because the writer didn't set out to make a bad, to write a bad book. I've no, uh, I've, I've, I've no time for those who think that all criticism of Doctor Who should be banned. It's, it's a bit like a religion in a way. Um, it, there, there's a certain set of fans who can only be happy when everyone else is happy. You, you, you say you post online, you didn't like a particular episode. There's a type of fan who won't... I'm getting into what I said I, want, I don't like doing, which is saying, oh, here are some fans who do this. But since we're actually talking about fandom itself, I think it's justified. You'll say, oh, I didn't like this episode. And they won't... Someone will post, they won't say, oh, but I thought it was good because A, B, C, D. Or trying to convince you, they'll just say... Um, they'll just quote the overnight ratings at you. As if because... X number of million people in the elsewhere liked it, therefore you'll think, oh, I must have liked it then. I didn't. I wasn't aware of it. I was. Um, I was fooling myself to think I didn't like it. And I, I, the, you know, the favourite war cry of these people is, if you don't like it, why do you watch it? <laughs> I, you should I said that you should accept all points of view, but I'd quite happily chin anyone who tried asking me that question to my face. For some of us, Doctor Who isn't, it's not just a TV show we watched during our childhood. It was an integral part of our childhood. Especially if you grew up in a country like the UK or Australia where it was, it wasn't just something that a handful of nerds watched in dark, dark, darkened rooms, but it was simply a fact of everyday life. 
for kids. And many of us, many of us don't watch Doctor Who today because it's the best show around. Whatever we say. Or because the current Doctor's the best. I think that many of us put up with a lot of, a lot of the show. Because we know that now and then it'll be brilliant again. Yes, hear, hear. And by being brilliant, it will. You're not just sitting there like um, I don't know an episode of um, Benedict Cumberbatch's. You think you think he'd have a shorter name, wouldn't you, if he was going into be, be, going to become an actor, Sherlock? You think, oh, that was that was a really good piece of TV. Uh, but if, when you when you see brilliant piece of Doctor Who, it actually, I think it, it takes you back to your childhood. That little special sort of joy you get used to get at a certain age from watching Doctor Who that you can't get later because you become more cynical, more knowing, more awareing, aware of you know how they they make these things. Mm. Um, I was, as I said, I was no great fan of David Tennant or Martha, but if I'd stopped watching, I'd have missed Blink. So we keep having we keep watching because for some of us it isn't some cult TV show we've latched onto. It's always been a part of our life. I wonder if this explains why, for some bizarre reason, Diddly Dumb Podcast, my podcast, our podcast, seems to be disproportionately popular in Australia. I don't know why. I'm not saying it's massively popular. I'm just saying it, it dis- it's, its audience in Australia is disproportionate to what you'd expect it to be. And I wonder if that's because it, it's not something that suddenly sprung, sprung up out of the head of Zeus in the last 10 years. It's something that's you know it's always been there, and and so you're 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 generally aware of all the stuff that went on pre nineteen eighty nine, and um, it's enough of um, a, a part of your own culture that you feel the right to be slightly annoyed if it's if you don't fi- if you don't enjoy it every week, or maybe it's just because Australians are still as bloody minded as the British. Very likely. I, I think uh, a podcast like yours, and I hope ours, enables um, older fans, those fans, as you say, pre-1989, to help reconnect with those that, that element of their childhood where Doctor Who was integral, um, enables them to sort of make that link between something that was you know, thrilling or exciting or scary back in the 1970s, for instance, uh, with, with, with what Doctor Who can still offer um, in, in, presently, I mean, I know that uh, some of the podcast topics that we've covered have been very well received by older fans here in Australia. I think a couple, one of the merchandising ones and one of the reference books ones. There were there were fans who who, who you know of our vintage, who particularly enjoyed them. Was that the merchandising one where you you, you talked to a guy who had a, a merchandising shop? Yes, that was a good one. I think I should emphasize that the Diddly Tom podcast isn't some relentlessly negative podcast that set, sets out to say. Wasn't it awful? I mean, it's just one where the point I'm making is if we say something's great, we say it's great. If we didn't like something, we'll say it. We won't just, you know, we won't look for the good in it just to avoid appearing negative. I mean, the uh, the, da- the Davros two-parter at the, st- at the beginning of Series 9, we were having going into ecstasies about um, stuff like, uh, what was it, previous series... What was the one with the kid under the counterpane? Listen. Yes. Stuff like that. Well, but but uh, I suppose it's easier. It's a lot easier to bitch about something than to, you know, pick holes in something than to say, oh, wasn't that brilliant? 
Um, but uh, there we are. I think we're like you uh, on the Deadly Dumb podcast. You know, we'll praise it if it's worthy of it, but if I don't like it, I'll certainly say uh, my piece about it because as a fan and as a viewer of television, I know what I like and know what I don't like. But that means that somebody else who's listening will go, well, you're wrong. They might have liked something I didn't like, and that's okay. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, it actually makes things interesting. Uh, you know, that's what used to when we used to go to fan uh, meetups in Victoria. We used to go to on a Saturday afternoon and talk about these things and say, "Well, I liked Tom and the Rania." I'd go, "Well, where's the nearest talk?" And I flush your head down it. But that's how fandom has always been in my eyes. Just the way of getting it um, of having that interaction has changed. I used to write for fanzines. Now I just do this every couple of weeks. Um, just to get my my feelings and and thoughts out. It's better to have them out than in. (laughs) And I'd rather be honest about it. I was exaggerating earlier when I said I've never agreed with anything JR's ever said on the Blue Box podcast. But the reason I keep listening to it is because because they say it's in an interesting way. Then, well, I I get angry about something. I say, you can't say that. That's that's nonsense. Then you say, all right, if you want to then dash off a a furious email to them if you're that uh, fussed. Um, Don't bother listening to them. And that's not the same as if you don't like it, why do you listen to mm. it? Because podcasts are ephemeral. It's not something you've been watching or listening to all your life. Oh, by the way, I, I am actually subscribed to Flight Through Eternity. Uh, but I never got around to listen to it yet, which is probably why I didn't realise it was an Australian podcast. It's just building up and building up uh, a bigger and bigger pile on iTunes, my iTunes account until I finally decided I better start listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we all do anyway I think uh, I think that's the negative of doing a Doctor Who podcast is that uh, the last thing you want to go and do is seek out others to listen to I mean I'm, I'm going to listen to yours and listen to Blue Box as well just to give that other view I suppose in terms of I don't like something I'd like to hear another opinion about well what do they like about it just so I can oh, yeah, challenge my thinking a bit like I, I used to listen to it 20 now I just down to like a handful these days just because mainly time and I'd rather listen to something else, to be honest. And after all that, it's now time for Who Knows, where we ask our victim to guess the Doctor Who uh, story in eight questions based on comments left on YouTube. Doc, are you ready? As I'll ever be. Okay, strap yourself in, son. The first one is, I watched the plot version. Is this meant to be easy, Mark? Honestly. <laughs> P-L-O-T. P-L-O-T. Plot version. Is this a comment or is this a reply to someone else's comment? An actual comment. Unedited verbatim comments. New series or classic? Most of them are classic except for the last one. And you've probably watched it recently. There's a letter missing. Oh, unearthly child. There you go. Okay, the second one. An iconic scene. Not too dissimilar to me getting up on a Monday morning, mind you. I know we don't like the don't cremate me people are far too sensitive soon. It will be that people aren't allowed to die in Doctor Who. Earthshock? Nearly Tomb of the Cybermen. How was that nearly Earthshock? Oh, Sandman, I suppose, yes. <laughs> on. It's got what? Cybermen in dies there. In, on the, who dies in... Who you care about dies in... Um... I know, like, the don't cremate me people are far too sensitive soon. It will be that people aren't allowed to die in Doctor Who. These are verbatim comments, Doc. I do not go editing these. These are as is. <laughs> Scary, really, isn't it? <laughs> we just talked about online forums and YouTube is the greatest uh, 
suppository of comments like this. I'll march on, Doc. An animated statue blows stuff up if it gets too close. Is the Brigadier in a flap? Has any attempt at flapping at him succeeded? The Brigadier seems to remain unflapped. If only there were there were a word to describe that sort of attitude. Sadly, we'll never be able to describe what he was like in an elegant manner. I could describe what he was like in an elegant manner. Unflappable. British! And the demons. Well done. That was, of course, about the Iron Patriot. Oh, I didn't like that. No, I didn't like that either. I didn't like that. Um, <laughs> his daughter doing five rounds rapid either. Again, it's at uh, it's getting another actor to do another actor's iconic lines. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. And it gave David Bradley hard time. There's another one there. Okay, next one. Two episodes later, they all engage in a lengthy persecution sequence depicting. Dozens of rooms within the TARDIS. Persecution? Are these people even watching Doctor Who? I think they're watching something else with the comments. Dozens of rooms within the TARDIS? Well, it it can't be Invasion of Time, because that's one room in the TARDIS they keep running through multiple times. (coughs) Is it? The Invasion of Time? (coughs) Invasion of Time. Yes, Doc. There you go, Doc. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Okay, the next one is Commander Max Management. We repress invaders from the capital. Collect patrols to intercept at the main entrance of the station. So the guards, we need to line up in a pincer movement and lure the alien scum into a trap without giving them opportunity to escape. Ready on three. One, two, three. Let's go, go, go. It. <laughs> this was a comment. This was a comment, Doc. It wasn't... Uh... In the first line, there's a clue. Commander Max. Uh, Infinity. Well done. Okay, the next one. Now, Doc... Just mind your ears, there's a bit of a swear word here. Piss off. Colin Baker was a better Sixth Doctor than any of you wannabes. I personally like this story. But then again, I also like The Twin Dilemma, Silver Nemesis, and even Arkham Infinity. Rob Melbourne. Hang on. <laughs> so so are, we, are we trying to find the worst Colin Baker story? I mean, we could be here for hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's the agony of choice, isn't it, really? Um, Twin Dilemma? Nearly. It was Time Lash. Oh, we go both of them with a T, don't we? So I was nearly there. Next one is, the episode title looks like a band name. I've just bought this on eBay. I'm not so much a Whovian, but it was filmed at Barry Island on camp. Mum and Nan took us there every year. Doctor Who goes butling it. Oh, I know which one too. I can't remember the name. Oh, ba 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 Dalton the Bannerman. Well done, Doc. You're on a roll. Terrible. Last one, Doc. This is the best scene in this awful episode. Yes, because an episode that it completely mischaracterizes the Master and the Cybermen in one fell swoop. Rob Melvin. <laughs> Honestly, it's not me. <laughs> oh. It's either going to be Death in Heaven or... Um, what was the one that previous to that? Something Dark Water. It's like trying to pick two turds, Doc. Which one do you think? I would say Death in Heaven. Well done. That was actually a special question just for you, Doc. So, out of eight, you actually got six, so well done. That's not too bad. There you go, well done. I'd like to thank my parents and my family (laughs) and my agent and everyone else who knows me. So, Doc, thank you very much for being on our podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. It was a joy from start to finish. Thank you very much. And where can people find uh, the Deadly Dumb podcast? Oh, Lord, I've not said this for years. Um, you can find the Diddly Dumb Podcast at diddlydumbpodcast.wordpress.com, which is our blog, or at diddly underscore dumb, or on our Facebook page at diddlydumb, that's D-I-D-D-L-Y, new word D-U-M, and I think that's almost everywhere. And your Patreon ID is? <laughs> <laughs> 
I've. Sorry. Uh, oh, can I? Do you mind if I uh, conclude the podcast with a little um, advert, please? For sure. Yeah, anyone would like to, <laughs> you to to hear me, Mark, and Rob do a commentary <laughs> of Time Lash? Send us five hundred pounds. <laughs> <laughs> And for bonus subscribers, we'll do Death in Heaven. (laughs) Oh, lovely. Thank you, Doc. I've been Mark. I've been Rob. And I've been pleasantly surprised. Keep Keep punching. punching. Dead bodies into the river. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.